The Big Schmear is brought to you by Ish Premium Horseradish. With a unique freshness, delicious flavor, and tantalizing texture, Ish is the surprise condiment that brings something special to everything and anything you add it to. From gefilte fish to vanilla ice cream, Ish transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary. For more ideas, visit premiumish.com. cuisine kind of goes on its own. At some point, there are people who are not thinking about the dietary laws. They're thinking about blintzes, you know. <laughs> and right. these things kind of transcend the cause of their existence. They came about as something to eat. It's like we're not all conscious of law, civil law in the United States, but we know sort of not to steal things and we know how to behave. I think cuisine was definitely affected by these laws, but at some point, people who don't even observe these laws are still attracted to that food, especially people who grew up with that food. Hi, and welcome to The Big Schmear, the podcast celebrating Jewish food, culture, and history. I'm your host, Beth Schenker. I hope life is treating you well and that the challenges we are experiencing are feeding your creativity, especially in the kitchen. A few months ago, I read a review of what I thought might be the perfect new book to talk about during Shavuos. Its title is The Dairy Restaurant. It is illustrated and written by Ben Katcher. So I purchased the book. Let me take a brief moment here before I tell you about the book, to just tell you a little bit about its author and graphic artist. Ben Katcher is a cartoonist and illustrator whose body of work includes graphic novels, a famous comic strip, a MacArthur Fellowship, collaboration on a few musical theater productions, and a teacher at Parsons School of Design. In other words, he's kind of a big deal. So now back to the book. I can't remember what my initial expectations were, but the book far exceeded those. The cover is beautiful, a detailed illustration by Ben of the inside of a dairy restaurant filled with happy customers. The book contains almost 500 pages with illustrations on every page, a huge list of dairy restaurants and menus, but more than that, so much history and so many stories. Who thought there'd be that much to say about dairy restaurants? So, I think it's time now for me to introduce my guest, Ben Catcher. Hi, Ben, and welcome to The Big Schmear. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for agreeing to be my guest. And I wonder, is life treating you safely and healthy in New York? Yeah, I'm used to a, a long summer vacation in some so yeah, I'm actually up in the country now. Ah, I'm not in the city, and I just came up for the weekend, but didn't go back. So, uh, <laughs> That's... But, uh, yeah, no, I have. You know, when you teach, uh, you get a, a long summer vacation. So uh, I'm always in some kind of isolated place in the summer, anyway. So this is a long, extra long summer. Yeah, it might go like... on. Yeah, yeah. I know it won't be possible to cover everything in your book, but I thought maybe we'd start with 
having you just give an overview and include perhaps what the inspiration was to write this amazing history of the dairy restaurant. I uh, stumbled upon these places growing up in New York City, and especially the 70s uh, when I became old enough to wander around by myself and go into restaurants. These were different than most restaurants. They had this limited dairy menu to begin with. And the atmosphere, they were all kind of on their last legs at that time. This is early 70s going, you know, up until the, the 80s when a lot of them disappeared. I, mean, I enjoyed the food. It was uh, food that I was familiar with from growing up in an Eastern European household in New York. But what I realize now, what really attracted me to these places is that they were the last remnant of a kind of working class or lower middle class Jewish business where the uh, you know, restaurant that was a family run operation, really a hands-on operation and with the end of that generation, these people didn't want their children to go into the restaurant business. So it all large, just one reason it ended. Their children all went on into the into various professions. So, uh, you know, it was the last place you might go into a, a place like the Diamond Dairy in the Diamond District in New York and hear Yiddish spoken. Mm. So that interested me. And I mean, I don't, I've always been attracted to the um, aesthetics of what people do when they don't have a lot of money to start a business. And, you know, that still goes on. You can mm-hmm. go down to Chinatown in New York and be in work places that have this kind of working class utilitarian atmosphere. So all of those things interested me. You did such an exhaustive amount of research compiling this book I wonder how long it took you to, from the idea of maybe I should do this to, I'm going to do this, and then you're going to see it in print. Oh, well, I was um, interested in the um, Lower East Side culture 20, 30 years ago, and I started interviewing people who grew up there. I don't think, I wasn't thinking about a book specifically about dairy restaurants, but just the general culture of that, of uh, Jews in New York at the, uh, in the early 20th century. And uh, at some point, I think next books uh, was a series of books about people responding to different aspects of Jewish history and Jewish culture. And they asked me if I wanted to do one. And these are small 120-page, basically long essays. And I said, yeah, I think I could do one about dairy restaurants. And uh, I didn't realize the enormity of the subject. Very little had been written specifically about dairy restaurants. So it wasn't really a commentary on the subject, but I had to... uh, actually research the subject and figure out how this all came about. Uh, yeah, and that took me back to antiquity and, you know, uh, mythology and all of these things. And it became 
a more complicated. So, you know, this is a 500 page book. And I think it just is a bare outline of this history. Which I find hard to believe, but in reading through the book, it's like there's just so much there, just on so many levels. And before yeah. before we talk about the actual content of the book, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your process, being that you're both the illustrator and the writer. And I'm wondering how you approach a book. Is it the art first, the copy later? or? Well, it's the ideas first. Think about what the, um, the subject is. I mean, it comes about through research. You get hints of this is an area I should look into. And then you start looking into it. And in many cases, there is no visual documentation. And so some of it is a kind of reconstruction of vanished things, places, and uh, situations. But I'm a cartoonist, so I'm used to working with text and image. But I tend to start, because it's easier for me to write than to draw. I mean, it's less of a commitment to write a sentence and to make a picture. That so makes I sense. tend to start with the text, and then I think about what parts of this book need to be expanded upon visually. And, you know, it goes from kind of a picture book format in the beginning to more traditional 19th century illustrated text. And then there's a part that's a comic strip. Then there's a part that works almost like a telephone directory. It's a you know, directory of all these places. So uh, the text dominates it goes, it tries to cover that. I think you did. whole spectrum of possibilities. You did an amazing job. And that's just giving people the, like the outside outline of what is in this book. And you, you touched on this just a moment ago, but I, I thought it was great that you start the book in the Garden of Eden and connect that to be the first restaurant. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I think as long as people left their homes for various reasons, usually business, you know, these uh, caravans carrying goods across the Middle East and into uh, parts of Europe, people got stuck away from home and had to eat out. And this comes up a lot in uh, fiction and historical accounts of especially Jews who did think about dietary laws, they couldn't just eat anything. They wouldn't just give up all of these um, observances because they were traveling. And you know, it was easier to eat non-meat dishes because you didn't need to go through a ritual slaughter. I mean, most fruit and vegetables and even milk, if you were to be assured of the source, were fine to eat. You didn't need a rabbinical certification in the early day in the ancient world. So uh, I just traced it back to this piece of mythology in the Old Testament where uh, there is this kind of pleasure garden and the story revolves around eating and what's forbidden to be eaten. And I just saw that as a prototype for um, the owner, there's this unspoken person who's sort of controlling this garden. 
and then this intermediary, and then the customers, and they end up being thrown out. You know? <laughs> right. uh, so I think it was inevitable. I had to talk about that when you're talking about eating in these kind of semi-public businesses. I thought it was brilliant. I, I just loved it. What a great way to start the book. The theme isn't, that's not really the right term to use, but keeping kosher and dietary and keeping to dietary laws really was the kind of this thread that follows through from really olden days, biblical days of, as you said, men on the, and families traveling on the road for business and where they could eat. And that really brought us to the dairy restaurant, sort of a long and winding road, but it's really all about dietary rules that kind of started that whole thing off. The cuisine kind of goes on its own. At some point, there are people who are not thinking about the dietary laws. They're thinking about blintzes. And, you know, <laughs> right. and these things kind of transcend their the cause of their existence. Uh, they came about as something to eat. And uh, just like we're not all conscious of uh, law, you know, uh, civil law in the United States, but we know sort of not to steal things and we know how to behave. I think cuisine goes, it was definitely affected by these laws, but uh, at some point, people who don't even observe these laws are still attracted to that food, especially people who grew up with that food. Right. Uh, So one section of your book that I thought might be interesting to talk about for a little bit is that whole movement of the milk of milk as a cure and all these places that cropped up in Europe around that new theory that milk and dairy was a way to cure your ailments. And so do you want to talk a little bit about how that affected restaurants? And uh, it also affected dairy farms where people actually were able to have a fresh glass of milk just at the farm and then it sort yeah. of grew into something else. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that whole movement. Well, milk is a strange substance. It's a very good culture for growing all kinds of diseases and bacteria. And it's also, people discovered uh, it could have certain curative effects. You know, most of these places don't exist anymore because the science behind them was largely debunked. I mean, I think people still think it's good to drink clabbered milk and put, you know, to reconstitute the uh, flora in your intestines, things like that. I think there's still some truth to that. But in the face of nothing else to do with someone who had tuberculosis, it seemed to help people to get out of the city and go into the countryside and hopefully reset their, their, their biological system by uh, letting them live on a very controlled diet of milk. And there were other cures. There were cures of various uh, mineral water cures. There were different juices. There were lots of cures. One of them was the milk cure. So it was sort of situated in the foothills of the Alps, where the cows ate this particular uh, grass, and supposedly that produced a kind of uh, a milk that 
might help these all kinds of diseases. So, I mean, it was, you know, early, days of early uh, medicine, people trying to figure out how to help people. Mm-hmm. And uh, sometimes just getting out of a city, if someone were living in a city and they had tuberculosis, it would help to just be in another environment. And the milk, it seemed to be something you added to, to the treatment. But it's interesting, it was also the carrier of disease. So there were all kinds of milk sicknesses. And then in New York, a lot of children developed all kinds of diseases from drinking on before milk was pasteurized. So uh, that was a big turning point. The idea of heating milk to the point that the the, uh, microorganisms would be killed before you drank it. So, uh, yeah, that's sort of what that history is. But these places had a whole social life going on, uh, places like Mariambad and other spa resorts. Sholem Aleichem wrote a whole book set in Mariambad. It was a place where uh, middle to upper middle class Jews from Warsaw would go as a social scene to marry their children, have their daughters married and meet people. It was a, a whole social thing went was going on besides the cure. And a lot of politics, right? There were centers of political movements that were people would meet. Well, the political ideas that surrounded eating is that meat eating, going back to the Middle Ages, was thought to make people more appetitive or rapacious, and it was something associated with the upper classes. Poor people, you know, if they had meat once a week, it was a lot. So most people's diet was vegetarian because that's the kind of food they could get. You know, before the industrialization of meat production. So uh, being a vegetarian or thinking about a non-meat diet was a kind of act of solidarity with the working class. So... Meat became affordable, and you know, mass-produced meat. One of the things that is also mentioned in your book is there's talk about drinking sour milk. Can you tell me what that is? Clabbered milk. It was part of the milk cure. Some of the the cures involved only uh, clabbered milk, uh, sour milk, or what we call buttermilk, and oh. uh, apparently it reduces the lactose content. So even though most, apparently 70% of Ashkenazi Jews have lactose intolerance, the kind of dairy they were eating uh, was tended to be cheese and sour cream, farmer's cheese, things that were of a reduced lactose content. Uh, So yeah, some of the the cures definitely were involved drinking uh, sour milk or kefir uh sometimes from from horse milk not not even cow milk oh really you know apparently for medicinal reasons all jewish dietary law goes out the window if somebody thought eating ham would make you uh if you were anemic and they put you on a a diet of eating ham that might save improve your health that was okay so uh Health uh, trumps the dietary law. Mm. So if a doctor decided you should eat uh, 
horse milk. That was okay. Well, I can't even, I can't even picture that, <laughs> picture that in my mind. But maybe that's yeah. Okay. There were resorts in Russia that that specialized in that. Wow. Uh, in the mid nineteenth and early twentieth century. Oof. So when we started talking about the concept uh, for the book and where that came from, from the beginning, you knew that dairy restaurants were on the way out. Can you tell me a little bit about some more of those things that, how that began to unravel? And I think there's several reasons. I mean, they're all outlined in the book. There's the kind of assimilation in America meant that people were exposed to world culture, uh, world cuisine. And so the idea of a plate of noodles with pot cheese was less attractive when you could have some more elaborate dish that might still be, you know, within Jewish dietary laws. That's one angle. Another big factor was that this immigrant the generation didn't want their children to be in the restaurant business, except maybe at the higher end of restaurants, but uh, not the kind of hands-on restaurant. And then it was perceived in the 50s and 60s that a high-fat diet was unhealthy. So all these things added up to uh, their demise. And then later... At some point, the people around these places thought their main clientele would be observant or orthodox Jews, and they had to bring in uh, meshkiachs or or supervisors and buy kosher-certified milk, and that drove up the prices. And so these places became more expensive than a, a neighborhood coffee shop. So if you just wanted a plate of vegetables, uh, you might just go to a coffee shop rather than go to a Jewish dairy. So it's a, it was a, a number of factors. I mean, the, you know, the Holocaust uh, also decimated the, the audience for this sort of food worldwide. Right. I mean, we can't even imagine what it would be like to have, a, you know, uh, if Eastern European... Jewish culture wasn't interrupted by the Second World War. The, I mean, it's a whole other world would have developed. Sure. And the, the history of those restaurants would have gone on all over Europe, especially Eastern Europe. You also mentioned another factor was kind of this delicatessen in cringing on this, where places now serve dairy and meat. And I wonder, in, in the climate now, do you think any new ones would ever like pop up? Well, there are lots of dairy restaurants in any orthodox or Hasidic neighborhood. They're usually identified now as kosher pizzerias. Oh. But they're, they are technically dairy restaurants. They serve no meat. But they're mostly the menu is facing toward the Mediterranean and Israel in the Middle East, not toward Eastern Europe. Maybe they'll have one or two Eastern European items on the menu. They might have a knish or a teya kugel, but mainly it's a, a Middle Eastern-facing menu and Mediterranean. So, yeah, there's no problem with starting. There are a few 
uh, restaurants that have uh, tried to continue this kind of uh, menu, offer this menu. The only thing that's missing is that they're restaurants at, the, at this time in history, and they're not catering mainly to uh, a working class. And so the, the atmosphere is very different. They're kind of upscale or right. mid-scale restaurants. So that's a big part of it. That aesthetic is harder to replicate than the menu. The menu uh, can be replicated. I mean, depending on how good the chef is. So a lot of this food is fairly simple, and so it can go wrong very easily. Sometimes the simpler a recipe, the uh, more it can go wrong somehow. Not a lot of different ingredients to hide behind. You're just you're out there with a simple dish. Yeah, but if the ingredients are wrong or they're you know not put together right, you can ruin. Uh, I once was at a gefilte fish tasting in New York City where they brought samples of gefilte fish from about a dozen food, mainly like caterers and food preparation places. And they were all very bad. Oh, no. The texture was wrong. It's a kind of subtle thing, gefilte fish. You know, there's a sweet, more Southern European style, and then there was a peppery kind. But basically, the what was wrong was the texture was too finely ground. It didn't just I didn't have the right texture. But I mean, these dishes don't they don't they exist as these platonic ideas of gefilte fish. But then when you make it, there's a lot of a lot of variation through accidents and things. <laughs> so when you were doing your research, or maybe even before that, did you have a favorite dairy restaurant that you went to? Well, they start, my favorites were long gone by the time I really started putting the book together. You know, uh, the Garden Dairy on East Broadway, that was a kind of a cafeteria-style dairy restaurant. I think that must have closed in the 80s, mm. late 80s. So uh, the Ratners on Delancey closed. The Diamond Dairy, that, that went on fairly long. But uh, no, there were not too many in business during the actual composition of this book. You know, maybe the B&H is one of the surviving dairies. Uh-huh. Do you have a record? There were a few in Chicago. I don't know. Did you know any? You know, I looked at the list, and I haven't lived here that probably long oh. enough to know. Um, Manny still exists, but other than that, and it's, I'm sure, not anything like it was in the early days. Was that a dairy? or? N- well, it's known as a Jewish kosher style place now. Oh, okay. So they serve... Yeah, the, the idea of this, this kind of all-encompassing Jewish style restaurant where they'll have blintzes and meat. Right. Yeah, that's, that's existed since the 50s or even maybe earlier. Mm. But uh, no, these were, these were places just dedicated toward the non-meat menu. But I think I listed a few in uh, you, Oh, you did? Uh, yes, absolutely. The number just relates to the pop Jewish population. So New York, they had a lot. There were several in Philadelphia, several in Baltimore. You know, as you left, got further from New York, I think they dropped off in popularity. Sad but true. Now you have to make all those wonderful dairy dishes at home, which 
is not a bad thing. Yeah, that's just not a rest. The book is right. Right. I, I don't think I would have been interested in, in writing a book about dairy cuisine. I was interested in these restaurants as cultural and social centers. So food, you know, doesn't play a big part in the book. I mean, I talk about it, but uh, it's really a book about restaurant culture. And, you know, that's exactly what I was going to ask you. What do you want people to take away from the book? What's the most important thing or things that you want people to be thinking about? I think the question of what was lost when Jews and any immigrant group, when they leave the working class, and that's a complicated issue because there are economic factors that drive people out of the working class. But the aesthetic that gets lost is something I think that could uh, be thought about. So in other words, you know, the most successful uh, Jewish uh, restaurant in the world is Starbucks or whatever you call it, a cafe. I mean, they have some food, but it's, you know, the epitome of the most boring place you could possibly go to. So success and the drive to be the biggest or the most numerous or the most successful kind of eating place can lead to the kind of the worst place you could possibly imagine. That there's, uh, I mean, all these individual dairy restaurants were inventions of individuals and they were they all had a very unique atmosphere. So the opposite of a, of a cookie cutter chain places. I think that's what I'd like people to realize. And anybody who looks at a an old photograph from the early 20th century of a street in any city, you'll see this amazing richness, both graphically and ideas of stores, kind of specialty stores. Uh, and it, that all came out of small businessmen and women inventing things, you know, this kind of desperation to invent something with not a lot of uh, money. And I guess the minute you have a lot of resources, that necessity disappears. Or at least you lose, you lose that special soulful connection, I think. Yeah, well, it's a quality of out of desperation, interesting things happen which is kind of our time right now. I think people are feeling that in many ways. Yeah, I know a lot of people are starting to bake a lot and cook doing things they wouldn't have uh, done in a normal time. Exactly. Uh, So, uh, you know, I mean, how the collapse of the economy, how this will rebound is an interesting question. I know it was mainly large corporations that got the first big bailout. And I think a lot of small businesses will have a hard time surviving without income for a few months or a year. Yeah, I think the world's going to look like a very different place, even just walking down your street, right? Yeah, I don't know. We'll see what happens. So if someone's interested in finding out more about you, your book, other things you've done, what's the best way for them to find out about that? Well, there's a website that's an addendum to the book. People are sending me information about their parents' or grandparents' restaurant business. And that's dairyrestauranthistory.com. 
And that's an, that's one place if you're interested in dairy restaurants. If you're interested in my other work as a cartoonist, then I also do operas, music theater things. That's just catcher.com. My name, K-A-T-C-H-O-R.com. And that's my website. And, you know, you can get to it. You'd find it if you just looked on uh, Facebook. Or you'd get to it somehow. It's pretty easy to find. You are easy to find, I have to admit. Which is good. Yeah. <laughs> so, Ben, I want to thank you so much for being uh, my guest today. Thank you. Talking about your book, which I love. And I wish you continued good health and success. Thank you. My recording and mix engineer is Steve Robinson. The Big Schmear theme music is performed by Cavatino Duo from their CD entitled Sephardic Journey on the CD record label. If you like The Big Schmear, please don't forget to subscribe and to write a review or share a like on my Facebook group page. And tell your friends to listen. It's the best way for my podcast to continue to grow. If you have comments or questions, I'd love to hear from you. Please email me at beth at thebigschmear.com. And be sure to check out my website, thebigschmear.com, to find recipes shared by my guests. I'm Beth Schenker, the host of The Big Schmear. Thank you for listening, and happy eating. The Big Schmear is brought to you by Ish Premium Horseradish. With a unique freshness, delicious flavor, and tantalizing texture, Ish is the surprise condiment that brings something special to everything and anything you add it to. From gefilte fish to vanilla ice cream, Ish transforms the ordinary into the extraordinary. For more ideas, visit premiumish.com.